me to the book of James. Excited to return uh, to the text this week. We're in the book of James, chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. If you're able, I invite you to stand and honor the reading of God's holy word. James, chapter 4, verses 8 through 10. Hear now the written word of the living God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Pray with me, please. God, we look forward to hearing from your word today. We desire to worship you through the preaching of your word today. I pray, God, that you would work in our hearts and our minds, that we would not only be hearers of the word, that we would be doers of the word. Holy Spirit, mold us and shape us, conform us into the image of the Son of God. Remove every distraction that we might focus upon this text today, Father. We always ask every week, Lord, if there's maybe somebody here who's never trusted Christ for salvation, we pray that he or she would come to know you today, that they would hear the gospel and believe. Be exalted today, we ask of this all in Jesus' precious name. And all God's people said, amen. Please be seated. If you were here last week, you know that we started a a two-sermon series within this fourth chapter of James called The Qualities of the Christian Life. And last week we looked at the first two qualities. Today we're going to look at qualities three and four. But last week, if you'll remember with me, we looked at humility and being submissive. So let's review those before we begin today, first of all, humility. We learn that the opposite of humility is pride. And what the Bible says about pride is that God opposes the proud. In fact, Proverbs says that pride goes before destruction. And we learn that it was pride that led to Nebuchadnezzar's insanity. It was pride that led to Belshazzar's death. Why? Because God opposes the proud, but humility, on the other hand, we learned, it accepts a place of service. And if we come like a child, Jesus says, in humility, when we acknowledge our need, when we cry out to God for help, God gives grace to the humble. We also learned about being submissive. And we learned the opposite of that as well, didn't we? It was having a hard heart being stubborn. We remember the hard heart of Pharaoh and how that led him to the death of his own son, the destruction of the whole Egyptian army. The stubbornness of Jonah, who found himself in the belly of the great fish. And we learn that God doesn't desire a hard heart. He doesn't desire stubbornness out of us. He asks us to be submissive 
to him, he even taught us to pray, God, your kingdom come, may your will be done. And we give God the respect, the authority that he deserves because he's sovereign and we're not. And we also learned at the end of last week's sermon that as we submit to God, we are to resist the devil. And friends, I want you to know that that last statement of resisting the, def- the, the devil, it's a perfect bridge to our text today in James 4, because today's text says that as we resist Satan, we are to turn the other way and draw near to God. And as we turn towards God, the Bible says today we need to do that with a repentant heart. Friends, I want you to know those are the two qualities of the Christian life we're going to look at today. That of being near to God or nearness. And then secondly, repentance. If you have your bulletin, I invite you to look on the back of it. Lord willing, the outline will help walk you through the text today. But let's look at the two points James makes, nearness and repentance. Please review verse 8 with me one more time. The beginning of the verse says this, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Friends, in preparing for this sermon, I was reading different commentaries, one by John Blanchard, and I want to read one of the things he said. He said, there are two views the Christian ought to covet more than any other. One is the devil's back, and the other is God's face. And James, in this text, promises that we can have both. Remember what we learned last week. James ended this section by saying, resist the devil and he will flee from us. And as we resist him, friends, we see his back. But today, James takes us to the next step. Because as you resist the devil, as you see the back of Satan, the Bible says God wants his people to turn the other direction and draw near to him. Resist the devil, but draw near to God. Come to him. Seek his face. Think about nearness. Nearness. It's a constant need, not just for a relationship with God, but it's a need for every healthy relationship. A relationship with your spouse, a relationship with maybe your best friend. I'm sure you desire to be near that person, to sit with that person, to get to know the other person. And nearness, friends, is a vital part of our relationship with God. I want to read to you another quote from Blanchard. He says it this way. The very fact that we are commanded as Christians to come near to God should teach us a very clear lesson. And that is that we have a constant need to come near to God. We're not to assume that just because we belong to a, a sound church or read the Bible every day or pray regularly that we're automatically walking close with the Lord. It is possible to be diligent in a religion and distant in a relationship. Let that hit home. 
It is possible to be diligent in a religion, but distant in the relationship. Blanchard says this, think about marriage. Marriage itself takes place at one moment in time, but that marriage bond will need to be cultivated or the relationship will become cool. So in the Christian life, we need to draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. And we need to do that continually. Drawing nigh to God is not the duty of an hour, but it is the work of our whole lives. Drawing near to our God. Friends, in the Bible, Jesus says to his people to come near. Here's how he does it. He says, come, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus says, if you come to me, I will never cast you out. But there's a warning here, friends. A warning that Hunter read from the lips of Jesus just a moment ago in Matthew chapter 6. A warning that defines a person who is diligent in religion and distant in relationship. Matthew 6, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees. You heard the text earlier. He talks about giving, praying, and fasting. And he said that this group of people, the Pharisees, they have this outward sense of drawing near to God. They give, they pray, they fast. And when they give... They blast the trumpet so that everybody knows they're giving. See, while they're being diligent in their religion, they're distant from God because they're not giving to honor the Lord. They're giving, why? To be seen by other people. When they pray, they stand on the street corner. They, they pray loudly. They use maybe big words. It's this appearance of I'm drawing near to God. But Jesus says their hearts are far from God. They're not praying to be heard by God. They're praying to be heard by men. And Jesus talked about fasting. He said that these folks, they, they, they would fast and pray, but they would even disfigure their faces so the outward world would know that they're fasting. They tried to have this diligent religion, this faith, but their hearts we're far, far from God, Jesus said. And that's a warning. That's a warning for every single one of us that in the midst of our religion, these actions of giving, praying, fasting, are we doing it to be seen by men or to honor the Lord? David told Solomon, he said, Solomon, know the God of your father and serve him with your whole heart. The Pharisees weren't willing to do that. They were more interested in the applause of men than giving God their hearts. We're going to put a few verses from the book of Hebrews up on the screen. Friends, as we read these verses, I want you to know that this is one of the most beautiful passages in the whole Bible that encourages us and encourages all of us as believers to come near to God. Here's what it says. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, 
yet without sin. Let us sin with confidence. Underline this verse in your Bible. Look at this. Let us sin with confidence. Do what? Draw near. With confidence, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. Friend, what was the function of a priest in the Old Testament? The priest represented the people of God and he came to the Lord in the tabernacle to shed the blood of an innocent substitute on the mercy seat on top of the Ark of the Covenant for the remission of sins. That was his function. He did it every single year. That's what the Bible says. He would go behind the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place. And he would drip the blood of an innocent substitute on that mercy seat. Friends, I want you to know that's what Jesus did for you. You see, the Bible says that Jesus is our ultimate high priest. And he, in a sense, went behind the curtain when you and I couldn't do that. And he didn't drip the blood of bulls and goats on the mercy seat. He shed his own blood on the cross. And you remember the passage in the Bible in the New Testament. It says when Jesus died on the cross, what happened to that curtain in the temple? It was ripped from top to bottom. What does that tell you? What does that tell me? It says that when you and I could not come to God, when we, it was impossible for you and me to be near to God, God came to us in Jesus Christ. And Jesus did the work that ushered us into the presence of God. You see, what happened is that Jesus Christ took you and took me by the hand and said, let me do the work that you can't do. I will usher you. I will carry you. I will walk with you. Rip the curtain in half and take you so that you can be near to God. That's what Christ has done for us. And the beauty of this passage says to you and me as believers, when we know Christ, we are ushered by Jesus. We are asked by Jesus to come confidently, boldly, so that we can be near Near to God. I love that verse 16. Let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace and help and help in a time of need. Friends, I want to ask you what keeps you from being near to God? What keeps you from being near to the feet of Jesus? Do you remember that passage in the book of Luke, chapter 10? Mary and Martha, two sisters, Jesus was in their home. Martha, she's up working. She's a good host, wants to make sure everything is in order. She's working. And she's so frustrated with her sister Because her sister Mary is sitting down listening to Jesus and she's so frustrated that she goes up to Jesus and she says, Jesus, won't you help me? Don't you see, I'm doing everything around the house. I'm keeping everything in order. Will you please tell Mary to get up and help me? 
And I know Jesus, in a loving manner, looked at Martha and said, Oh, Martha, you're just so anxious. You're so busy. But you need to know Mary's making the better choice. She's decided to sit at my feet. She's decided to be near me right now. Friends, I ask all of us the question, what keeps us from being near to Jesus? Maybe some of us are like Martha. We're so busy, we're so distracted, and we need to hear the words of Jesus. Mary chose the better option. Mary chose to sit at my feet to abide with me. Maybe it's because we, like the Pharisees, have the wrong intentions. We're so worried about what other people are going to think of us. That's why we give. That's why we pray. That's why we fast. We're more concerned with what man thinks than what God thinks. So we're not near to Jesus. Maybe you think your sin is so big that God could never forgive you. You think it's impossible to be near to God. Well, dear friend, I want you to hear again that passage from Hebrews. Because your high priest, Jesus Christ, did for you what you could never do for yourself. He shed his blood on the cross. That curtain was ripped in half. And he grabs you by the hand. And he ushers you into the presence of his father. And he says, come, draw near to God. That's what Jesus has done for you, friends. Nearness. God is calling us to nearness. Remember the two views. The devil's back, God's face. As you resist the devil, draw near to God. Secondly today, this last quality, this quality of repentance. Look at the end of verse 8. Let's reread that text, the end of verse 8 through the end of verse 10. This is James Chapter 4, the end of verse 8 through verse 10. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Repentance. What is a good way to teach the word repentance? Um, if you wanted to illustrate repentance, it would be a U-turn. Have you ever done a U-turn? If you've driven, man, you can't get around the Indian Trail without doing a U-turn. <laughs> Tell you what, you go down Indian Trail Road and you want to go left to Charlotte, uh-uh. you got to turn right. And you got to make your U-turn so you can go to Charlotte. You do U-turns all the time in Indian Trail. U-turn, 180 degrees or pi radians for you math folks. Anybody? Nope. Okay. Sorry. Still waiting to get someone to join me in the math game. Um, so the picture of a U-turn is you're going one direction, and you you're to, you turn 180 degrees, you're, you're going the other. In terms of the Bible, it's the picture of a man who's walking towards his own sin. Okay? And that he sees what Christ has done for him. And in response to his sin, he decides to turn from his sin and turn towards Jesus Christ. It's a 180 of acknowledging your sin before God and then turning to Christ. How does James describe repentance in this text? You heard the words. He says, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts, 
mourn and weep. Those are some big verbs. Those are some very descriptive verbs. Cleanse, purify, mourn, weep. Simon Kistemacher said it this way. He goes, a Christian ought to be happy in the Lord, thankful for the gift of salvation and obedient to do the will of God. But when the Christian has fallen into sin and responds to God's call for repentance, a change must occur in his life. Laughter and joy are turned to silence. When he reflects on his sin, a penitent, the penitent is filled with mourning. He's filled with gloom. Friends, how does the Bible talk about this type of repentance that I'm talking about? Let's think about a few examples from the Bible. Let's talk about Peter, David, Paul, and the tax collector. First of all, Peter. Right before Jesus was arrested, what did Peter say to Jesus? I am ready. I'm ready to stand with you. I'll be arrested for you. Jesus, I'll even die for you. Jesus says, Peter, before the rooster crows, you'll deny me three times. There's no way he would do that, right? He's dedicated. He's committed. Yet, shortly after Jesus' arrest, the Bible says that Peter denied Christ how many times? Not once, not twice, three times. No, I don't know him, even to the level of cursing. And the Bible says the rooster crowed. And at that moment, the Gospels teach us that Jesus made eye contact with Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord. Friends, at that moment, it was not a time for joy. It was not a time for laughter. It was a time for mourning. And Luke says that Peter went out and he wept bitterly. As this text says, at that moment, Peter was a double-minded man. He needed to repent. How about David? We've talked about David a lot the last few weeks. We know what he did with Bathsheba, with Uriah the Hittite. Then it was Nathan the prophet that came to David, told him the story about the sheep. And then you can only imagine him sticking his finger in David's face and saying, You're the man! And David, being a man after God's own heart, the Bible says, turn to repentance. And you saw the beauty of that repentance in the psalm that Hunter read earlier, Psalm 51, the psalm that we prayed today as a church. God created me a clean heart. Renew a right spirit within me. Only if you wash me will I be whiter than snow. I acknowledge that before you. Oh, God, how about Paul? In Romans chapter 7, Paul has dealt with this issue of doing what he shouldn't do and not doing what he should do, right? As a believer, and at the end of that chapter, what does he say? Oh, wretched man that I am, who can rescue me from this body of death? And this last one, we'll put it on the screen. 
This is Luke 18, 10 through 13. This is the Pharisee and the tax collector. You know the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers. And you see that guy over there? I'm not like that guy, the tax collector. I fast twice a week. He was trying to be near to God. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Friends, in the book of Ecclesiastes, we're reminded that there's a time to weep and a time to laugh. There's a time to mourn and a time to dance. James is not talking about the time to laugh. He's not talking about the time to dance. He's talking about that time to weep, that time to mourn. Friends, when we fall into sin, laughter and joy are not what we need. The Bible is talking about a deep brokenness and sorrow for sin. So again, this text demands us ask questions of ourselves. Think about David. Are we broken for our sin like David was in Psalm 51? Do we mourn and weep for our own trespasses like Peter did? Do we recognize our wretched condition like Paul did? Have we humbled ourselves before God and cry out for mercy like that tax collector did? Or do we stand there boastfully like the Pharisee? Are we double-minded? Do we still play the hypocrite, acknowledging God with our lips, but our hearts are still so far from him? This appearance of nearness, but in reality, we couldn't be further from God. Friends, as we close today, think through these things. These are the qualities of the Christian life. Again, last week, we talked about pride. The Bible says, cast off pride, put on humility. Cast off the hard heart, cast off stubbornness, and put on submissiveness. And as you do that, resist the devil. And as you see the devil's back, turn and see the face of God and draw near to God. Recognizing that Jesus has made it possible for you and me to be near to God. That we can come confidently, boldly. That we can draw near to find grace and mercy and friends when we sin let us come with a repentant heart broken for our sin for the bible says there should be times of weeping there should be times of mourning but friends i'm not going to leave you on that note because we all know what the bible says we have a god who stands ready to forgive us to love us. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 says, If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just, and He will forgive us of our sin. Jesus will cleanse us from all, our, 
unrighteousness. Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And that's the beauty of the gospel. Friends, that's what makes grace so marvelous. It's what makes mercy so grand that we're forgiven by God because of what Christ has done for us. Pray with me, please.